Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live for Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. So modern computers actually have their Windows licenses built right into the motherboard. If you weren't aware of that, it's a advancement from the way that we used to do it, which is we take a sticker and put it on the top of the tower. Nowadays, they embed it into the, mother, the motherboard. And the idea is that it makes it really easy for the user to reinstall their chosen operating system without having to worry about the cumbersome requirement of finding that sticker that may have gotten scratched off, peeled off, fell off, whatever. The problem is, what if you're a Linux user? and you've wiped the Windows operating system off of your computer, your laptop, your desktop, and instead you've now replaced it with something like Kubuntu. And because we still live in a world in where Windows is required, you have to maintain a VM. You would have to go out, you'd think you'd have to go out and purchase a second Windows license for 200 and some dollars from Microsoft, but alas, no, you can actually pull that license key out of the motherboard and activate it inside of a VM. That's actually within your license contract with Microsoft. So the way that you do this is you look for the string in slash sys slash firmware slash ACPI slash tables slash MSDM. So I'll have that for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com so you can reference it there. But that is, to me... I, I've always wondered to myself, what is the, what are the ethics behind selling me a computer with a $200 windows license attached that if I don't want to use it now, I'm just kind of out on my own. Um, so this, I, I like it because it allows me to take advantage of the license that I've already paid for without giving windows direct access to my system. Our gadget of the week this week is the Pi book pro. Now, the PiBook Pro is what you might think it is. It's a laptop-powered Raspberry Pi. But what makes it unique and what makes it cool and why I've decided to feature it this week is because it's essentially a folding screen with a keyboard and mouse that connects over USB interface back to the Pi. The catch here is it's only $79.99 plus shipping. $79.99 plus shipping, and you get the PiBook Pro, a, lap, a laptop-powered Raspberry Pi. Now, this comes with an 11.6-inch full HD 1080p display, which, by the way, who knows uh, where they got this 12-inch 1080p display because I know a guy that could use a few for about umpteen billion reasons. Uh, that's That alone is worth 80 bucks. A six-hour battery life, you get, when you pay the 80 bucks, you get the PiBook Pro and the power supply. Uh, for those of you who are keeping track, that's 99 cents more than just the Apple Power Brick for the MacBook Pro. Now, obviously, <laughs> you're not going to uh, you're not going to compete with the MacBook Pro with your PiBook Pro, but having that as just an outboard interface is something that I think would be super useful. It, how many times? Actually, Kenny's with me. I should I should have introduced you. Kenny Schmidt is our, our lead installer at AltaSpeed Technologies, and he uh, he poked his head in the studio because he got back after doing a long day of, of installs and said, "I'm gonna sit in on the tech show." So, how often do we see in the field where you would say to yourself, "I if only I had a keyboard and a mouse, 
Oh, just yesterday. No, just Actually, yesterday. Today, but, I think maybe even. But we were we were sitting there. We we get called in to fix a an NVR that we really hadn't actually uh, installed or really wanted to maintain. Oh, yeah. It's not really our chosen brand, but they said we need to do this, and but we needed a keyboard, mouse, and a monitor. Yeah, like here's the other thing. I'm looking at this like this is like really thin and light. Like this, since it doesn't have any processing in it, right? It's super like this looks like a premium product and is extremely small. This would be super useful. Like yesterday, I was lugging a whole 24 inch monitor, a keyboard, and a mouse, and it was like chucked yeah. it all in the back of my car. This I'm like I could drop this on my laptop bag next to my main laptop. Now imagine if you have this device and then you have a couple of Raspberry Pis and maybe they're configured to do different things. Like this one is configured to deal with, you know, network simulation or network analysis. And this one is configured for this, that, or the other. But I can think of all different ways to deploy this. Anyway, very cool thing. PyBook Pro, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. Podcast.asknoahshow.com. That's where you can catch up and find all of the links and references that we use in this show. In the news, Microsoft is releasing Edge for Linux. This comes to us from TechCrunch. The Edge browser is, browser is officially coming to Linux, starting with the dev channel. The first of these previews are going to go live in October. When Microsoft announced that it was going to switch its Edge-based browser to the Chromium engine, uh, it vowed to bring, every, to bring it to every popular platform. And of course, at that time, Linux wasn't considered on the list, but by late last year, it became clear that Microsoft was indeed working on a Linux version. Later, this year's build and a Microsoft presenter was even seen using one during a presentation. So Microsoft announced today that its developers have made more than 3,700 commits to the Chromium project this far. And some of that work is to support things like touchscreens. But the team also contributed to errors like things like accessibility features and developer tools on top of the core browser fundamentals. Now, what I thought was really interesting was the fact that we don't get this kind of detailed approach to most open source projects. It's not that developers are unwilling to do it, but unless there's a funding model behind the open source project, it becomes very difficult to spend time to say to yourself, I'm going to spend, you know, however much time it takes until we get desktop support on touchscreens working properly in this web browser. And this is something that Microsoft uniquely brings to the table if they're able to dump uh, this much money into solving those problems. I shouldn't say uniquely because I guess Google really is, is maybe even a step up on that. Um, but the positives are there are a lot of FOSS projects that have time and resources now to perfect uh, things that they wouldn't have ordinarily been able to to perfect. And so I think Microsoft committing to the Chromium project itself, even if you don't actually use Microsoft Edge, and I have no intention of doing so, even if you don't use Microsoft Edge, you're still going to benefit from the fact that Microsoft is paying, playing in this space. The, 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 the problem here is, first of all, unless Microsoft brings DRM that allows 4K streaming on Linux, then essentially what they've done is they've repackaged Chromium, they've given it a different name, and they've, they now have a marketing point to say that there's one more piece of software that Microsoft maintains that runs on Linux. But Microsoft involved with FOSS has to be watched carefully because their decisions, and we're seeing this now with NVIDIA, and we'll get to that later in the hour, Big companies, when they have massive resources and they make decisions, this has a turbulent history uh, in the tech community. And so 
things I believe have changed in Redmond over the years. And I say that not because I have some great insight, but because the people that I listen to for insight, people like Linus Torvalds, people like other developers that actually work at Microsoft or work with people from Microsoft, people from Canonical that work from Microsoft, all of those people unilaterally tell me the same message that Microsoft these days is a different Microsoft than it has been in the past. And indeed, we can see that from the way that Microsoft structures themselves. No longer do they tie their success to Windows the platform. Instead, you see them jettisoning people that that rely on Windows, the desktop operating system itself, and instead they're moving towards a subscription model for productivity suites and cloud platforms and developer tools. And what they found when they st the way that they reacted when their developers started leaving Windows and going over to Linux, they had an opportunity or they had a choice at that juncture. They could make the choice to say that we are going to double down and really push the Windows platform and, and come up with some key competing product or come up. They didn't do that. That's not the direction that Microsoft went. And this is a change. This is not what we've seen before. And instead, Microsoft applied a tactic that worked well uh, back in the Lotus 1-2-3 days. First, they provided backwards compatibility. Then they assumed ownership of that entity. But in this case, the, what, their success is tied to users paying for a service. And as long as the users get the service that they've paid for, then the user is happy and Microsoft is happy because the next year the user has to pay again. So the model for Microsoft has changed a little bit. But now the question for Microsoft is going to be, how can they provide those services again and again and again and keep people coming back to them? And for that, you need reliability. You need security. You need robustness inside of that. And what platform offers that? That's Linux. That's containers. Containers and Linux and Docker and all and and the, and the scalability that comes with those technologies is fundamentally allowing Microsoft to succeed in this space. So that's Microsoft's angle. That's why supporting Edge, for example, on Linux is somewhat of a priority to Microsoft because they can see that there are some people that actually have to build this stuff, that have to live in this environment, have to use all the same daily tools that everybody else in the rest of the world uses. I still have to be able to get on Slack. I still have to be able to get on Teams. I still have to be able to check my email and, and, and do the, the, the things that I have to do in my daily job. Microsoft recognizing that as a valid workflow, even if we don't like the fact that it's Microsoft, is valuable to us in the community because it comes with a paycheck attached. And so the next time that I go into a hotel and they tell me that they're on XYZ platform and it requires Microsoft Edge, no longer does that immediately preclude using Linux in that situation. Now, Chromebooks become up in the mix, are possible. Uh, regular Linux computers or just regular desktop Linux uh, distros, all of those become options in place because we are beginning to abstract the operating system and put everything into services. This is good for Linux. This is good for the community because if you work in this space, there are job opportunities every time you turn around because somebody has to manage all of these services. Somebody has to make sure that the Microsofts of the world and the Red Hats of the world and the Canonicals of the world and the, you know, all these businesses rely on the same technologies. And that means that those jobs are more marketable. Those skills are more marketable. It is the best time ever to be in open source. And yet, and yet, I get on Twitter. And I get on Red Hat, or I get on uh, Reddit, and 
there is no end in sight to the people that 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 want to spray doom and gloom and why this is no big deal or why why nobody should care or or how this doesn't actually add anything to Linux. It's you. Sh I'm not telling the, the the release of the software is not what we should be focusing on here. It's the direction of the industry. It's the direction of the fact that ARM wants to own this stuff and arm wants to build very powerful machines that can run inside of the data center and then they want a small remote device that can connect back to them we are building this right now it's unfolding and this is this is part of that and at the very heart of that is linux the very thing sprung that we have all been hanging around and 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 playing with and enjoying and experimenting with this is coming to fruition and i just think it's really cool on the other side of the news docket though the ARM founder has started a Save the ARM campaign. And the idea behind the Save the ARM campaign is that ARM Holdings was the, uh, was the United Kingdom's semiconductor company that was sold to NVIDIA. And of course, we talked about this at length last week with the crew from Destination Linux. I highly recommend you go back and get caught up on that, uh, on that episode. But Herman Hauser who started the company in 1999, along with uh, a couple of other people, a spinoff of Acorn Computing, uh, wrote a letter and, and, and sent it to the, U the UK's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. And he says he's concerned. He says that this deal impacts jobs in his country. He thinks that ARM's business model and the future of the company's economic sovereignty, independent of the United States, is at risk. And he launched a fundraiser. And I think he brings up some very important questions. He asks things like, why can't ARM continue to build itself as an independent company? Why did it opt to go for a SoftBank acquisition in the first place? And why aren't they doing more to support the building of its own homegrown tech giants? This is, this, at this time, it, it, when the United States has always predominantly dominated tech, and then we ship those things off to China. They are made there, and then we sell them to the rest of the world. And ARM was the first real competitor to, to really show promise at flat-out replacing Intel's technology in certain tech sectors. More people are interested in phones, and it, you don't have to own an IT company to see that. You can just simply walk around and see how many people have, are holding an ARM computer in their hand, and they desire nothing more. They're perfectly happy with that iPhone. They're perfectly happy with that Android phone. They don't feel like they need a desktop or a laptop to interact. They'll use one for work because if anybody wants to get work done, you, there's certain productivities you have, to, you have to work around. And that process and that environment has just shifted. And the guy who founded the company, the guy who has watched this grown for, from birth for over for like 30 years, is looking around and going, it's amazing that it has this much success, this is terrifying, and why doesn't my country benefit from this? Why doesn't my country get to be the one that owns this thing? And I can relate to that, and I can understand that. Um, he writes that this puts Britain in, uh, in a position that decides about who ARM is allowed to sell to and makes the White House not on Downing Street, he writes. Um, so obviously this deal is a shift in the global distribution of technology um, but I, I'm still excited about the prospects of what NVIDIA can do with a deal like this. I will continue to watch this Save the Arm campaign because to a certain degree, this is the last cry back out to the community. This is the last cry out to the world to say, 
here is your chance to, to speak up with your wallet. And we'll have the link for you in the show notes if it's something you decide you want to support. Uh, here's what here's here's what we think is our, our possible concerns. Are there enough people that value those concerns or share, share those concerns to topple an NVIDIA deal? And again, this, the, the, you know, if you haven't caught up from the episode, it's this, by, this deal is by no means in stone. Uh, it's 18 months just to plan this out. Um, so we've got a long time uh, before this really comes to pass. Uh, Facebook is in the news today, and they're warning uh, that they're about to shut the European market down. So, Kenny, uh, I, uh, I'll, I'll ask you to chime in here a little bit. Um, Facebook, to, to, to recap everybody, essentially the EU privacy uh, laws um, are, are now are, have now been passed and are now being interpreted to, to say that U, U.S.-based companies that collect and sell information the way that Facebook does are no longer going to be able to operate. And they've defined and continue to require companies to respect people's data rights. And Facebook has now said that this, is, this could potentially... Uh, affect their ability to operate in the European market. Quote, Facebook has warned that it could be forced to pull out of its European market if European regulators push forward with limits on data sharing between the European Union and the United States. Until this year, an arrangement called Privacy Shield allowed U.S. technology companies to easily move data between the two jurisdictions. But Europe's highest court nixed that agreement in July, arguing that the U.S. lacks robust protections against surveillance by the U.S. government. In the wake of the ruling, Ireland's privacy regulator ordered Facebook to stop sending data on European unions to its U.S. data centers. Ireland's Data Protection Commission, that leads the enforcement of the European private regulators with respect to, the face, with respect to Facebook because Facebook officials' European headquarters is in Dublin. In the event that Facebook were subject to a complete suspension transfers of users' data to the United States, as it appears to be what the DPC proposes. It's not clear to Facebook how in those circumstances it could continue to provide Facebook and Instagram services in the EU. Facebook data protections official Yvonne Curain wrote in a court filing earlier this month in Dublin, the first report on Monday. So this is what I would say is step one of it's finally happening. This is the time when the first communication, the first thing that is available everywhere and everybody is on it. And it is, it is, it is critical. It is critical to some people's workflows. It's critical to some people's family connections and it's about to be shut down and, uh, or potentially shut down and we'll see how this unfolds. But if Facebook decides to move forward, if Facebook sticks to their guns and the UK sticks to their guns, which I hope to God they do, if that, if, if that actually happens, we will have the first real-life example of what a company does when users, through the force of government, stand up to a, a private company and say, nope, you can't collect data anymore. We now value data. We, it doesn't matter how much money you have. We have to have data. And Facebook is now standing up and saying, well, if we don't have your data, we have no product to sell. This is how we make money is we take your data and we sell it. That was the agreement. And you're going back on your part of the agreement. So we're no longer going to provide you this free service. I, what, Kenny, you're, uh, you're significantly younger than me, right? So, I mean, at least the, from, the, from a generation, from a technological generation, what does, the, what does a platform like this starting to close down part of an entire world market? I mean, how does that affect somebody like you and, and the connection that you have to your friends or your family? For me personally, I think I think you make a good point there. The uh, the connection to like 
more extended family that we don't see a lot, that kind of stuff we'd lose. Um, but I'm thinking from it, even from a t- technical standpoint, um, this is kind of a good point where VPNs and stuff could come in in theory, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And to a certain extent, this is why geographical borders for to try to enforce technology don't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't. Pa- yeah. Packets can go anywhere. I mean, yeah. so the idea that like your packets magically have to stop, it's almost like we have to make different firewall configurations based on what governments decide or what packets can get where. Yeah. And is that really the kind of internet we want to live on? Right. And the other thing that I think it would affect a lot too is businesses that put a lot of their stuff on Facebook. Um, actually, one of the other companies I work for, almost all of their advertising is done through Facebook. Um, we just ran a snow campaign for that company and we gained multiple clients through doing advertising on Facebook. So we would lose basically our main tool for doing advertising for businesses um, and even like personal stuff like mark, uh, Facebook Marketplace and stuff like that. You lose like small marketplaces and type like all that kind of stuff. But it's a huge effect to lose that. There are small social groups. Yeah. There are, you know, families have, they, 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 I, I've seen people that that's what they use to keep in contact with people. And so I, you know, if I think where what we take away from that is that any of these platforms can be shut down at any time. And I think most people are like tangentially aware of that. It, when the news breaks, obviously people in the EU have some time. They've got a few weeks yeah. to figure out, say, hey, you know, grandma, we're going to figure it out. So it's not so much like, you know, we lost connection with the other side of the world, anything like that. It's not it's not that big. But but what it does is all of that network effect that you built in one social platform is now gone because that platform couldn't agree with the government and where it was hosted. In it. And those kinds of issues should not affect technology. Those kinds of issues should not be the kinds of things that we have to consider when we want to participate in, in sending a message from one person to another. And do you think uh, if we start valuing as, as nations and stuff, if we start valuing privacy more, and we start cracking down on this type of thing. Do you think you would see these programs like Facebook and these companies built off of selling data and personal data? Do you think we would see a much more pay-to-play type style on things like paying yeah. like for a Netflix subscription or something like that, where you know you're paying for your social subscription or something like that? Do you think we would see more of that? A typical uh, a typical colonel in the chat room said the same thing: is the Facebook's next move is undeniably going to be to say. Well, it's nine bucks a month or 12 bucks a month, and then you get access to Facebook from the EU, and then that's how they'll fund the model. But the important thing, and this will be interesting, though, it's one thing for people to sign up when you don't know that you're, that, that the company is taking your data and selling it, and when you don't understand what the actual ramifications of that are, right? I have people in my own family that you, you can't be that guy at family dinners that are like, do you know what's wrong with technology in the world? You just can't be that guy. But at the same time, I, 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 I will, you know, they'll ask, you know, why don't you and I'll say, well, because of the privacy implications. Well, what does that mean? I'm like, you, know, you don't want to go down this road with me, you know, <laughs> but I, I'll tell them a little bit, you know, and I, I get through one or two sentences and, you know, I get that well, either has a tinfoil hat or that's crazy. I didn't know Facebook could do that. And then everybody has those experiences where the algorithms are so spot on that then people realize, oh yeah, Facebook really is paying attention, you know? And I think I, I think people will evaluate the value of something to their life differently when they have to sign the check for it, as opposed to just signing up to terms and conditions they didn't read to begin with. And I and and when that happens, we'll then be able to see what the real impl- or what the real impacts of 
of, of a closed network like Facebook are. Do people sign back up? Or do people say, it's not worth it if I couldn't get it for free, if I can't, if I can't just check on the box, I'm not going to pay to go to Facebook. I can't, wait for the, I can't wait for the comments to start rolling in of people that say, hey, I, uh, I, I, before all of these privacy people came out, Facebook is free. Now Facebook isn't free, and that's my problem. You know? How much of an effect do you think that would have on the content on Facebook? Do you think we'd get better quality content? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because the people that want to be there want to be there. I think anytime you have a paid paid subscription to anything, you're probably going to have a better experience because there's a funding model to cover your footprint in, in that space. But as it relates to social media, do you want to be paying a company to for the for the privilege of connecting to another person? Is that something that you should have to pay a a company for? I think I think nowadays with especially with people being separated more now. I think there's a lot of value in that, um, having that connection. I think people would to some degree. It may look different. 410 million monthly active users in Europe. That's what, that's what, uh, that's, that's what's, that, that's what Facebook claims that they have. So that's the segment of the worldwide population that if they were using Facebook for their, uh, for their connection system, that's the that's that's how many users are going going to go cold. So I would encourage you know the the, the takeaway here again is the, if you're paying for something or if you're not paying for something and you're using somebody else's services, you better understand how it is that thing is being funded. And if you're willing to write a check with your privacy, then you're not going to really have a problem. I think for the most part, if there was a way for them to for Facebook to write the required click buttons, which is probably why they're upset that their their feet are getting held to the fire. And that, this was in their response. They said that they didn't believe that, uh, you know, three weeks was enough time. And of course, my initial reaction was, how long does it take to shut the button off that says collect all these people information and, se and, and sell it? How long does that button take to turn off? And, but I think what Facebook is really skating towards here is they're, they want to have a settings dialogue that will allow you to say, Hey, if you're in the EU or you set it this way, then don't collect this or, and, and how do you split that, those things out? And if there is a revenue model, um, then they will try to, then they'll try and tie to it um, again, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Ask your questions, participate in the conversation. Um, so this week we had a matrix outage and it was the first one that we've had since setting up the server. And so a, a brief recap for you, if you're if you haven't been following the Matrix Madness discussion, we covered this a few episodes ago in Matrix Madness. This follows right after the Southeast Linux Fest. We did it virtually on Matrix and it provided a natural connection back to all of uh, all of the geeks that were hanging out at this conference. And we just kind of kept the instance going um, and I don't really ever truly trust something until it breaks. That's the truth. And the reason for that is because when I can see how something breaks and when I see more importantly, how something recovers, then I know how much work is involved in maintaining it and, and how well it's, it, it's, it's ultimately going to work. And so when matrix, I, I, I think the first I heard was uh, one of our users alerted me that he wasn't able to contact somebody on matrix.org. And so I try and contact that user, and sure enough, I can't reach somebody on matrix.org, and I realize that uh, we're off the Federation. We're no longer speaking, and I can't figure out why. And uh, so I ping the team that manages our, uh, our instance, 
And they said, you know, we're going to look into it, and, and but they weren't able to get to it for, to a few hours. One of the guys that maintains it lives in Finland. So I thought, well, it's, I better step in and, and, and try and take a look. And so I, I got as far as I could. Uh, and, and, and it was interesting because all everybody that it was trying to talk to, of course, the logs are spinning out and saying, you know, I can't reach this instance, can't reach that instance. Eventually, we track it down um, to an error with the, with the uh, let's, uh, well-known um, file that sits on the web server and it turned out not to be a matrix problem at all rather it was a instance with a misconfiguration of the web server that that ran on the parent domain so we get it back up and running and now was well we fixed the certificate thing and now was where i really started to get interested in what matrix was going to do because when it comes back online We've now been off the Federation for maybe 24 hours or more. So there's a whole lot of web packet out there that's going to come hit our server. And I guess a recap for those of you that, again, that hadn't heard the, the previous episode talking about Matrix, the, the, the cliff notes are that there are... Matrix is a, an encrypted decentralized communication protocol, and it was designed from the ground up to meet modern messaging and communication requirements. And so there's two components, the server, uh, which runs... Uh, it was a program called Synapse and the client which runs his element. Obviously, there's more than one way to peel an apple. And so there's a lot of variants out there, but those are the two that are most widely in use. And the idea is that you have a user that wants to uh, use Matrix to sign up uh, for that wants to use the Matrix protocol. And so they go to a Synapse server and uh, they sign up for an account. And if you don't have somebody else's Synapse server to use, you can simply spin up your own. Uh, and from a bare bones install, a bare bones Ubuntu install. If all you do is add the repo and install Synapse, then you're and, and you have to go into the configuration file and enable registration. Then you download Element the client and you sign in with the account that you've created, and two people can talk to each other. Nothing more that you need to do. But the real power in Matrix comes through federation, and that's what broke this week. Any Synapse instance that is federated can access any other public room on any other Synapse instance in the Federation or be invited to any private room on anywhere on the Federation. And so when a user from your Synapse instance joins a room from another Synapse instance, then a copy of that room is created on your Synapse instance and then they're synced through Federation. So when I post a message to my Synapse instance, I'm posting it to my, uh, my, my server other users on the Federation are posting to their server, and then our servers communicate together. So on Friday, when our instance stopped participating in Federation, our users were still able to communicate with each other because they were all on uh, all on Linux Delta, and that included some people from my team at AltaSpeed. Uh, where it broke was we had certain bots that were hosted on matrix.org and though that federation is what allowed our instance to talk to those bots and so the bots that synced to telegram and discords and those kinds of things broke um but what didn't break was my sms bot and when i looked down in the midst of trying to troubleshoot this at three in the morning i looked down and my my client is working and my uh, my sms bot was working i'm thinking to myself how is that even possible nothing else can talk but somehow this thing can and it dawns on me it's because i'm hosting it and i think at that moment it kind of clicked for me i'm like even though there is a problem and even though we're trying to resolve it the bottom line here is as long as my stuff stays up the thing that i own 
I'm able to continue my life as, as usual. And then Federation was restored. And when Federation was restored and you started to see the backlog sinking back down, it was interesting. All of my conversations that we had had in my copy of the room since we had been separated from the Federation uh, was synced to everybody else's room, uh, everybody else's copy of that room. And all of the conversation that occurred in the room while we were gone uh, came back down to our instance. And it was so smooth. We didn't even actually have to do anything with Matrix itself. Again, there was a there was a separate issue, but having watched that break and also digging into it and seeing how it works, why it works, uh, I'm more confident now than ever uh, in in the protocol of Matrix. And I, I think there is some room to grow on the client uh, on the client side. And but we have switched over to it for our show chat. And so if you'd like to get involved, you can go to LinuxDelta.com. Um, we have a hosted Element client at Element.LinuxDelta.com as well as you can participate. Uh, by installing Element and just creating a an account. Um, so, Kenny, I wanted to save a little extra room this hour for uh, our feedback section because I think uh, that you're going to have uh, something to add. So, uh, our, we have C writes in and says, I'm a big fan of your show and your knowledge from experience in open source. I know that I can always trust your advice when it comes to hardware and software recommendations. I work for a lo local sheriff's office in North Carolina, and I'm a liaison for some community watch groups. I know that you have a lot of experience with surveillance systems in the commercial space. So do you have some recommendations for us on the sh on the shelf camera systems that are also a good value? I have done some research, but there are just so many options that's often difficult to select equipment. You might have a guide or know where to find one. Naturally, I would like to go an all open source solution all around, but I'm also a pragmatist and appreciate that solutions that all homeowners will actually be able to find, install, and operate themselves. I know that there is not a one-size-fits-all system, but maybe you could recommend some systems that would help budget-minded, concerned citizens. I've also interested in surveillance solutions that you'd recommend for gated neighborhoods and developments, something that can be installed on a weatherproof box or cabinet or mounted on a pole. I don't know where to tell people to shop for the boxes that they can mount on utility poles. I'm looking for a go-to setup that I can recommend to neighborhoods that they can install in guardhouses or gates that would monitor traffic, what's going in or out of the neighborhood that could be easily remotely accessed by law enforcement, the HOA, or Community Watch. So uh, a, couple of, a couple of ways that you could go about doing that. Actually, we just got a call. 877-855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. You're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Yes. Hi. Um, hardware question. Um, so basically, at my house right now, I have just a dumb uh, niche, and I'm looking to upgrade it. Mm -hmm. And basically, I'm kind of looking for three things. Um, I'd like to segment off my network, uh, various IoT devices, and then I'd also like to uh, increase my knowledge of networking and about VLAN. Sure. So, you know, like to not spend a ton of money on it as well. Well, there's a couple different ways you can do that, Peter. The, the, the first way that you can go about doing that is you can buy used gear and set up what's known as, as a lab. Um, and essentially, you can buy some older switches and, you know, depending on what platform you want to learn, they're all, the basic concepts will be the same on all of them, but the individual implementation and the command line interface will be different from, from device to device. But you could, you know, I would go on, on and either purchase some used Cisco gear or used HP gear and you 
could test it that way. If you wanted to get, you know, if, like you say, I want something for my house. I want to actually see it in 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 production. I would I would probably suggest the HP switches. Um, there are other switches. Okay. There. Here's the truth. The truth is that there are other switches that are easier to manage that will work inside of your house, like Unify. Um, the controller's a little bit easier. The UI's a little bit easier. The problem is they abstract, in my opinion, a little bit too far and try to dumb it down a little bit too much. And I, I'm afraid what that leads to, particularly if you're going to try to use it to... Uh, to, to build skill uh, and something that you would want to use in production as a technician, then I wouldn't go that route and I would I would stick with something that uh, that supports all of the network features, uh, something like HP or Cisco. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm looking for. I think the point I got to was I you know went on eBay, started looking at switches. I think just got overwhelmed by just kind of the sheer number of manufacturers and the model numbers and stuff. So yeah. I think at this point, for either, I wasn't sure direction to go. Yeah, absolutely. I will. I'll link you an HP nineteen twenty. Um, they're kind of our quote unquote standard deployment. Um, if 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 we have a client and there's there's not a good reason to use a different switch and they just need kind of a general all purpose switch, uh, that's what we go to. Atypical. Um, likes the TP-Link switches, and I've used a couple of those. Uh, what I will tell you is, at least TP-Link, as opposed to Unify, at least they'll get the terminology, right? And so the terminology that you'll see on a TP-Link is going to be exactly the same as the techno te the terminology that you're going to see um, inside of an HP switch or a Cisco switch, uh, because they don't they don't try to do that abstraction. Again, I think you're going to run into some limitations um, with, with TP-Link TP switches, though, when you start getting a little more advanced. But just learning some VLANs and stuff, yeah, it's a great way to go. All right, back to our surveillance question. Again, your calls always take precedence at 855-450-855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. So surveillance systems recommended for gated neighborhoods, developments, and also something that homeowners can use. Um, so there, there's a lot of questions in there. We'll break it down. We'll start with the two components, the camera and the NVR. So when it comes to NVRs, um, we've tried them all. And uh, essentially what, what we've landed on is the Synology disk station with the surveillance package. Uh, surveillance Center is an add-on to, uh, to the surveillance disk station, but the truth is that the, the, it, it all kind of depends on what the features you're looking for, but most people want the ability to connect to multiple vendor cameras. They want a good mobile app. They want an ability to find recorded footage easily. They want push notifications if... Uh, you know, there's motion or something happens. They want the ability to have user access control to give some people access to some cameras and not others. They want an easy way to send footage to the police when necessary, those kinds of things. And surveillance station checks all of those boxes. Additionally, it scales so you can use them in fairly large deployment. Um, the, the thing that I like most about surveillance station is that because they're primarily a storage company, they have no real reason to try to make it work with one camera uh, better than another. They want to work with every camera. Now, they test with Axis cameras, and that's indeed what we use for most of our installations. Axis is a... Is a is a, a company based out of Switzerland and makes very high-end uh, cameras that are are that they keep up to date and maintain a good security apparatus around. Um, and so, the, the, I believe that they're ten-year cameras, and so that's what we that's that is primarily what we sell, and it's certainly the cameras that I have around my house. If you want to go outside of a proprietary solution, which Surveillance Station certainly is, um, ZoneMinder is a good open source alternative. However, it you won't check the box of prepackaged. 
Um, in fact, truthfully, none of this stuff is truly going to be prepackaged because they're all from different vendors. So somebody is going to have to assemble this for you. Now, if you don't have somebody to do that, you can give customer care a call at 866-280-1433 or email sales at altaspeed.com and somebody will help you. I mean, we can certainly do that, but um, you'll need to find somebody that can order uh, all the individual components and assemble them uh, and then program them and in, in, in all of that. Uh, but surveillance station will be your best bet if you just want a, I want to order something off the internet. I want to take it out of the box, plug it in. I want to have it work. That's your best option. Um, past that, if you're willing to build a box, then you can go open source, at least on the NVR. And that looks something like ZoneMinder. You are going to have to make some tweaks to the UI. Now, if you want to go one step removed from that, uh, you can start to dumb down the cameras or, or start to get into budget cameras. And we've tried a number of different ones. Um, some of them have some se pretty serious uh, security implications. So I would stay away from things like hike vision. But um, Dehua is, they're, they're not a U.S.-based company and they don't have, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't swear by them, but at the same time, they're a $60 camera, $70 camera, which is a little bit more approachable than Axis's $300 entry model. And so we've just found clients that have said, I don't care what the security ramifications, I'm just not paying $300 for a camera. And so if that's what you're up against and you've got to dumb it down or budget it down, um, then you can go the Dahua line. As far as actual boxes to mount, that's an interesting thing. And we've actually done this before. Um, the boxes that you're looking for uh, is, is essentially it's a Hoffman box is what you would Google or, or look on Amazon. And there's a variety of companies that make them. You don't have to buy them directly from Hoffman, but it's an outdoor enclosure. Um, and then I, what we do is when we install the equipment into the box, uh, we close the box up and then we will usually seal it um, with uh, some sort of silicon seal to keep water and moisture and stuff like that out. Uh, but but you you know you wouldn't want to keep the NVR there. That would just be something like the PUE switch and then you would put something like the nano beams on on your uh, on your telephone poles with your cameras. And that's kind of the surveillance outpost. And then what you would do, is you take those nano beams and send them back to someplace where you have hardwired internet. Um, and at, at that location, then you would either host the NVR there or you would host the NVR at some other third party location, but get the camera feeds back through that, that apparatus. But that's, that's really the only way, unless you have participation from the city to actually, you know, run or install this stuff, that's the only way that you're going to be able to build the little ad hoc network that you need to get the cameras to get the feedback to the NVR. Otherwise we have no, we have no, uh, testing or or indication that you would put an nvr outside they're not built for it they're built to be indoors and so there's no enclosure in the world i would put an nvr in and, and trust how hot or how cold it's going to get 855 450 noah that's 1-855-450-6624 the email live at com. atypical right there calls in hey atypical welcome to the program hey just wanted to give you a follow-up on those switches sure um, the tp link consumer line are absolute crap you have to make sure you get the commercial line, which is the jet stream line. Okay. So I just wanted to clarify. But that. the the CLI, the, but the, the the CLI though is is you're going to get a, you're going to get the, the 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 experience on the switch with with some of the lower models. It's just if you're going, you know, if you get comfortable with with a with a HP nineteen twenty or a Cisco, it doesn't brand doesn't really matter. But if you get comfortable with their entry level models. And you get comfortable with the way that they configure and the terminology and stuff like that. You can always grow to a larger switch when the environment needs it, and then you can learn those features, right? Um, it's actually not the size of the switch; it's their um, consumer line. Say they have, you know, an eight-port consumer line. They just perform horribly. 
they're absolutely awful pieces of tech. But their commercial line, their jet streams, those are pretty solid and how do you, handle the bandwidth and stuff. How do you say, and again, we just have specific models that we go to, so I'm not familiar with HP's entire lineup. How, how do you distinguish their professional line from their consumer models? Is that what the J in front of it is? Consumer models, well, yeah, so the, their jet stream line is the ones that I have. Um, and so, like, the particular model I have is the TLSG3424. Um, but I have their Layer 2 managed switches, and that allows you to do your VLANs and stuff and do the IP config on the router. Sure. So they're relatively inexpensive, even if you wanted to purchase them brand new. And they have a lot of features I was surprised to see in something that inexpensive. Okay. So it's just another option out there. And But their actual consumer stuff, I mean, like these are rack-mountable. Like they're designed to go into an enterprise. Their consumer stuff just falls over when you try to push anything serious through it yeah I, i'll be honest i'll be honest I, with you I, I i appreciate the call i i i'll be honest with you i have uh i have found that the only manufacturer that actually lives up to their spec is cisco um when you need real-time performance like perfect and i don't know if you've i don't know what industry specifically you've you've worked with switches but uh when we'd use them in broadcast we simply can't it doesn't matter what brand it is they don't work unless they're cisco um that's the only way we can get real-time audio when you start getting hundreds of thousands of audio feeds all going in 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 one big network yeah and i mean i unfortunately don't have enough networking gear to actually load test these but i i will say i have never had an issue with the tp links okay. the jet streams very so, cool um and the nice thing is is that if he ever wants to upgrade to fiber in the future they actually have gbic ports good to know So he can grab a gbic module and sl slot that in hey i appreciate you chiming in there yep no problem 855-450-855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com Luke writes in and says, Noah, first, let me say I'm a big fan of your content and appreciate everything you do from the open source community. I oversee an IT and general administration strategy for a business consulting of approximately 140 network users. You mentioned a thin client-based managed services solution for UltaSpeed was in the midst of deploying for a customer. I'm following up for some additional details to the specific software that stack that was being talked about, along with your recommendations for best in-class hardware solutions for the end user. For example, is it a scalable server running CentOS, RHEL, uh, with a stack including KVM, KMU, Libvirt, uh, client devices for Raspberry Pis, leveraging thin links, or have you determined an alternate solution to be more effective? Kind Best regards, Luke. So, uh, first things first, um, the... ThinLeaks did not work inside of our client because what their requirements for the for the client end of RDP uh, ended up being extensive. And so the original promise of, hey, we can deliver these workstations and they will show up on this thing and you can do all of these things, that part was flawless and worked fine for a few weeks. But when they start getting into things like, here's one, RDP burning over, I, somebody tell me how you can burn a optical disc from an RDP session to a drive because 
We've tried every iSCSI software under the planet, every every amount of troubleshooting within our entire company. We cannot get this entire process to work. Um, so there are some things like that that are that are just that just drain you. And so at some point you just have to say, well, this is just not the right tool for the job. Um, and but so we've we've gone back to the actual Microsoft RDP client. Now, the truth is that the vast majority of their investment infrastructure is still there, of course. Right. Because. It was the the way that the end machine presents the workstation is somewhat irrelevant. Really, the the power and flexibility of the system like that is that you, the fact that you have a host that's running a reliable, secure, up to date operating system that then virtualizes all of the all of the actual workstations, which now have snapshots and backups and all of those kinds of things. And now we can deliver that that workstation presentation anywhere. Um, so if you're looking for 140 clients and all they have to do is is work inside of a Windows environment, they don't have to interact with external hardware, um, ThinLinks is a great way to go. It really works well. Um, it is maintained by a single guy, and that makes us nervous. But the as far, we never had, and Kenny, you played with it a lot more than I did, but we never really had it fail as far as ThinLinks itself. No, in our lab uh, test environment, it was actually a pretty incredible situation. I left a uh, YouTube video going in a VM for like 24 hours and set it up and then left and came back the next day. Everything was running flawless. The video playback was great. I mean, no frame drops. I mean, overall, just an incredible experience. And, and even after we transitioned it into load and under, under production, nobody really had. In fact, we actually had to have a conference. We had to go sit down in the conference room with with our client to explain to him why we wanted to take it back out and go to an RDP client um, because the performance was that good. Uh, and so, the, you know, and, and the, the configuration management utility that allows you to just click into the client and say, well, this is what I want you to connect to. Those kinds of things uh, make managing, especially if you have a large infrastructure, uh, really easy. The best solution, if you're looking for a, a thin client, out of the box thin client solution, and you didn't want to use the RDP uh, or go the Microsoft route, is probably something from end computing. Um, this is a company, especially because you mentioned best in-class hardware, this is a company that has uh, that has spent years trying to develop the perfect thin client. And they have a number of different options available, one of which is actually based on the design of a Raspberry Pi. Um, and I ha we have these in deployment for clients as well. The thing that I don't like about end computing and where I was hoping that um, ThinLinks was going to be able to fill the gap is that the truth is, end computing is is a very proprietary company. I mean, they, the software runs on Linux, um, but it's a subscription model. It's a subscription model that has uh, once you pay for the license and you activate the server, even moving it from one machine to another becomes difficult and or impossible, as they won't reactivate, or at least they wouldn't for me. Um, and so, what we ended up doing was virtualizing the the all of the, everything just so that we could move this stuff around without having to worry about the, the licensing. So I, I hope that gives you something to go on. Another thing to explore would be Dell Wise. Uh, again, not right for every solution, but the the Wise clients. Um, this is what we're using in broadcast, and 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 those clients. Again, if you're just trying to connect uh, back to a Windows machine, the Wise clients are a really great way to do that. And so I will have links. Um, Atypical Colonel was kind enough to post the, uh, the 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 switches that he recommended in in the Geek Lab, uh, and so I'll have those included in the show notes as well as all of the articles and references that we talked about. Um, so I hope that answers your question.
about uh, about scaling out a uh, a virtual thin client. We I'll tell you flat out, we don't have any clients at, with with that size deployed uh, with completely virtual infrastructure. This we deploy we deploy virtual infrastructure all the time. This was the first time that the entire office runs on a single server and has no resources outside of that server. Um, and so, as with any time that you deploy something for the first time in production, we are learning and adapting as we move forward. And so, we'll continue, of course, to present that information. What were your takeaway lessons? I mean, am I right? If it's just inside the RDP session, it's fine. It's when you want to start interacting with hardware that Windows just doesn't know how to behave. Yeah, and it didn't even seem to be all hardware. There was a couple things that did work pretty well. Like, we were able to get uh, webcams and stuff working. Um and audio and all that kind of thing. It seemed like it was just specifically the uh, burning function uh, in in the RDP session. Uh, we're actually able to read off of CDs as well as like flash drives and any other like external hard drives or even the client's hard drive itself. It, you know, this is where uh, this is where they were Microsoft dragging along Windows 7 into the next installation of Windows 10 and all the cruft that comes with it really shows its its ugly head because the way that they're doing that they're it's essentially just creating a samba yeah, share. Yeah, it's a network share exactly. Yeah. Yep. One of the other things I wanted to mention too before we move on from the mail segment um sure. the previous emailer was asking about the security cameras and whatnot mm -hmm. and you had actually done an episode a while back it was episode 157 uh labeled China ditches windows you actually talk about in that episode uh this analogy disk station and the access cameras and it's a, just a great episode so if that's something you guys are interested in uh take a look at that episode it's just it's a standout episode on security cameras thanks yeah I'll throw that one in the sh in the show notes too but the um the the uh when when you start looking at what all of, you start looking at all the companies that are releasing products and this is the chat room talking about this as well the unify protect is 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 the, is the direction that unify has gone after they had their self-hosted NVR obviously there's a lot of people out there that are going the ring route or the you know that camera route but I would again like you know the Facebook discussion the Nvidia discussion the camera discussion you know what they all have in common is Try to stay away from infrastructure that is hosted by someone else that you don't have a clear agreement with on where your data ends and where their infrastructure begins. I, I just, I don't know how to be any more honest than that. Hey, next week is episode 200. It's a big deal at the Ask Noah show. We're going to uh, be changing up the show a little bit, uh, modifying the, 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 the show format. The truth is just after two years of, uh, of, of doing a show, or three years actually, geez, wow. Three years after uh, of doing a show, there has just been some cruft that has cropped up. And there are certain things that, the, certain infrastructure things that don't work. And I just need to take some time to sit down and fix them. And so that's going to be happening over the next week. We're going to have, uh, I'm going to try and keep Noah's booth open here in the, or excuse me, yeah, the Geek Lab open here in the studio. So if you join our Matrix instance, you can join the Geek Lab. It's just geeklab colon linuxdelta.com. There's an embedded Jitsi instance. And so I've just been hanging out in there uh, throughout the day. And uh, and so over the course of the next week, we're going to continue to get all of these things fixed. And then we'll roll out all of the changes in time for Ask Noah next week. Simon Quigley uh, is going to be in studio with us. Kenny, you're going to be back. We're going to be playing Zenotic about an hour before on the Destination Linux community server. So around five o'clock, that'll probably kick off. And then we'll do the show and then announce a couple things and talk and 
have a good time. And then after that, go back to get the show out and then uh, go back to uh, some Sonotic and, and round out. So it'll be a virtual hangout next week. It'll get started, uh, I would guess, around 4.30, 4.45. Uh, and if you ha- if you don't have a way to participate, the you can just go to element.linuxdelta.com. We have a hosted Element instance, and so you could simply just sign up for an account there, and you're able to participate. The rooms are public. We've got a number of different uh, public rooms that are available on that on that instance. We have the Geek Lab, which is kind of the hallway, the ability to get in touch with everybody. Uh, small business discussion, photography discussion. Ham radio discussion on Linux. All of those are available in the matrix. And since next week, my good friend Alex Archer is going to join me on the air. We're going to be talking about ham radio and how he uses it uh, on Linux. He has, he's built an SDR cluster on a virtualized server. He's doing all of this on Linux and he's going to join us next week and explain what software he's using, how he's got all that set up, and then how he sends that uh, over to his phone. This hour of the show may be over. You can follow us and get the latest up-to-date news by going on Twitter and following at AskNoahShow. You can get the show notes by going to podcast.asknoahshow.com. We record every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. We invite you to join us live for the show. You can ask your question in the chat, call in, tweet the question. I don't care. We're very flexible about how we take your participation. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. The show continues 24-7 at 365, asknoahshow.com.